Quiet on the set. Okay, everybody, quiet on the set. Scene one, take ten, Marker. From the studio of WHUP LP Hillsboro, welcome to Murmur. My name is Robert Malazzo, and over the next hour together, we'll explore where culture meets craft. Today on Murmur, the punk is prologue, survivor of substance, parent of punk, pistol of sex. Steve Jones is with us. Welcome. Murmur. Welcome back to Murmur. Robert Malazzo here with you. Thank you for being with us. I'm the founder of the Modern School of Film, and weekly, once a week, we come to you at WHUPLP, Murmur. You can also be heard uh, via our website, murmurradio.com. You can also be seen socially, must be seen socially, at MSFMurmur. That's Twitter, Instagram. We have a Facebook page. We have an email address. Lots to download on you. We have an uh, email address, murmurradio, one word, murmurradio.com at gmail. Yeah. What else do we have? Uh, ModernSchoolFilm.com. But this is Murmur. Welcome. Today's guest is Steve Jones of the Sex Pistols. Uh, and I, I'm i always reluctant to, to call him of the Sex Pistols. He has a book out uh, called Lonely Boy. And uh, the book is amazing, I think. Uh, and he's more than Steve Jones of the Sex Pistols. He is certainly one of the fathers of punk, but really a survivor uh, in many ways. And we'll talk to him about that today through the lens of the book a little bit. I, it got me thinking, reading about Steve, reading the book a few times and uh, thinking about artistry. It's a common topic uh, with students of mine, actually, talking about art and suffering. Suffering uh, through some form of personal chaos or environmental chaos. Students ask me a lot, uh, should I, I'm really, I'm going through a lot in my life now and I'm having trouble creating 
and and I'm sort of doomed, aren't I? And no, obviously they're not. And history has shown that th- from great pain comes great art. But I, I guess the question becomes, and the hotter topic or the more the more consistent topic for students of mine, and not just students, but people in my life, is how how to to deal with one's pain and does does nullifying pain lead to art? Great art. Does pain lead lead to great art? What it what is the um, gate of entry uh, in in the sense of does art is art helped by pain? That's really what they're getting to, and that's what I want to get to a little bit before we welcome in Steve Jones, who's been through a lot of personal pain, but made history and familial pain, but made music history. So I think that's the place to start today. Uh, history has shown us that there are artists who have created works of, of extreme stature, artistic works of extreme stature, despite their pain. But that's the question. Is it despite their pain because of their pain? And now there are different kinds of pain. There are, there's the pain of mental illness. There's the pain of, of abuse a physical abuse, a familial, a familial abuse. Uh, there's the pain of uh, physical illness in the sense of physical deformity. Um, but there are other kinds of pain. There are more nuanced versions of pain, you know, bullying, which I don't think is nuanced, but it's not as top line publicly. You know, people think bullying is, is sort of a rite of passage. Um, but, it's not. It's not a natural thing. So it leads to great pain. So that's a form of pain. Uh, there's biological pain. There's inherited pain. There's mental illness that is inherited. There's abuse that is inherited, substance abuse that are inherited. There's patterns of behavior that that are inherited. And sometimes the cure for those pains can also, you know, that also feeds into the alchemy of, is this going to help my art? So getting back to my students, a lot of times students will say to me something as basic as I've been feeling really depressed. Should I see a therapist? Should I seek treatment? Or, or will this pain lead to real art? And, and the fear for students, but not simply the students, let's leave that that metaphor because it's not a metaphor. I mean, students really do ask me this question, but the fear I think for people creators is that the, without the pain, they won't be able to create. This is a real fear. And the only way to test this empirically, a human being for them to test it empirically is to go through it. Uh, My thought is that art is pain is not necessary for art. But it's not a zero-sum game. I mean, there are artists who have gone through different measures of pain who have created great works. Uh, Steve Jones is one of them, you know. So that's a little bit why this topic came to mind, but it's always kind of been in my mind. I was I was noodling around uh, trying to find some artists' reaction to their pain and how they figure it into their, their work. Two, two struck me. Brian Wilson, uh, one of the creators of uh, Beach Boys, has battled pain (laughs) throughout his life. Uh, He has fought through anxiety. He has fought through depression. 
he has been um, diagnosed uh, schizophrenic. Um, and this is all on record. I, I'm, I don't think I'm grasping here. Uh, th- this is uh, this is certainly on record. Uh, he had family pain. His father um, uh, was was a bit of a tyrant. It seems like uh, he actually he tied Brian to uh, a tree to punish him, and um, he was abusive to to Brian as a child. And Brian even said a, a beating he took from his father may have caused deafness partial deafness. Brian said, I was constantly afraid as a child. That's what I remember most being nervous and afraid. Um, in 2002, he, uh, talking about his schizoaffective, uh, condition, he, uh, he talked a little bit about how his disorder affect his creativity. He said, I haven't been able to write anything for three years. Now, this is 2002. He said, I haven't been able to write anything for three years. I think I need the demons in order to write. But the demons have gone. It bothers me a lot. I've tried and tried, but I just can't seem to find a melody. That sort of isolates it. I mean, he went on to write more. This was 15 years ago, so he has written. He has pushed through the block. But I do think there are artists who fear... A form of balance. Now, some artists may never be able to achieve a balance, so I'm not assuming balance is is there for the taking. But some artists resist it. Another um, another idea along this line. Before we welcome in uh, Steve Jones to go through some of this with him was um, Edvard Munch. Um, Munch uh, was. Uh, he, his father was a bit of a religious zealot and ran a very controlled family unit. Um, and uh, he, Monk claimed very specifically, I'm quoting, reading a quote, from him I inherited the seeds of madness. The angels of fear, sorrow, and death stood by my side since the day I was born. Christian reprimanding, reprimanded. Uh, so... That's that's a kind of, you know, a case study towards this idea of, of where this pain goes. This was the 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 the, the quote that, that struck me in terms of how it fed Edvard Munch's art. He said, "My life, my f- sorry, my fear of life is ne- necessary to me, as is my illness. Without anxiety and illness, I am a ship without a rudder." My sufferings are part of myself and my art. They are indistinguishable from me, and their destruction would destroy my art. He wrote in one of his journals, Illness, insanity, and death were the black angels that kept watch over my cradle and accompanied all my life. Now, would you sign for that? That's sort of the question. Would you sign for an artistic career like Monk or Brian Wilson or others who have battled demons, different forms of demons? Would you sign for... Steve Jones's career. Would Steve Jones sign for his career? Let's ask him. Hey, Dad. There's a strange fella sitting on the sofa, munchy munching lumpticks of toast. That's Joe. He uh, he lives here now. <laughs> <laughs> 
the lodger. That's what he is. He rents your room. How do you do, Joe? Find the room comfortable, do you? No complaints? I've heard about you. I know what you've done. Breaking the arts of your poor grieving parents. So you're back, eh? You're back to make life a misery for your lovely parents once more, is that it? Well, over my dead corpse you will, because you see they've let me be more like a son to them than like a lodger. Yo, yo, don't go fighting me, boys. Well, do put your hand over your mouth, please. It's bloody revolting. Are you all right, lad? Shh, Dad. Treatment. Well, it's disgusting. I mean, it's enough to put you off your food. Oh, leave him be, Joe. It's treatment. Did you think we ought to do something? Would you like me to make you a nice cup of tea, son? What have you done with all my own personal things? Oh. Well, that was all took away, son, by the police. New regulations, see, about compensation for the victims. What about Basil? Where's my snake? He, he met with, like an accident, uh, he, he passed away. What's going to happen to me then? I mean, that's my room is in. There's no denying that. This is my... Home also. What suggestions have you, my PM, to make? Well, all this needs thinking about, somehow. We can't very well just kick Joe out. Not just like that, can we? I mean, Joe's here doing a job. A contract it is, two years. Uh, and we made like an arrangement. I didn't we, Joe? You see, son, Joe's paid next month's rent already, so... Well, whatever we may do in the future, we can't just say to Joe to get out. Now, can we? No, but it's much more than that, though. I mean, I've got you two to think of. Who've been like a father and mother to me. Well, it wouldn't be fair now, or right, I mean, for me to go off and leave you two to the tender mercies of this young monster who's been like no real son at all. Well, look, he's weeping now, but that's all his craft and artfulness. Let him go and find a room somewhere else. Let him learn the errors of his way, and that a bad boy like his being doesn't deserve such a good mum and dad as he's had. 
<laughs> Alright. I know how things are now. I've suffered. And I've suffered. And I've suffered. And everybody wants me to go on suffering. You've made others suffer. It's only right that you should suffer proper. You know, I've been told everything you've done sitting here at night round the family table, and pretty shocking it was to listen to. It made me real sick, a lot of it did. Now look what you've gone and done to your mother. I'm leaving now. You won't have a video me no more. I'll make me own way. Thank you very much, but it lie heavy on your consciences. Now don't take it like that, Johnny. Going back to your beginning again, you know, in the whole uh, punk movement, 76, 77, um, and you were called a punk band. You were called like a very important punk band, if not probably the most important. Um, but Wrong. Now, the most important was the Sex Pistols. Oh, Gone. Okay. Okay. Well, I would have to agree with that also, definitely. There's an expression uh, in this sort of cultural landscape. Uh, the expression is the child is parent to the adult. Now, that can go one of two ways. One can have a sort of cherubic upbringing and do great things and move mountains and win prizes. That's all well and good. Or one can have a sort of different path where uh, the upbringing is a little more shite. Sometimes that upbringing can get the ball rolling into history. Or, as the great philosopher David Bowie once said, the bitter comes out better on a stolen guitar. Now, how did I know that piece of philosophy? Well, I read it in a book recently, and this book has a lot of philosophy. I'll give you another piece of sophistry from the book. 
quote, it takes years of peeling layers off the onion to get to the cleaner bulb. And while people are shedding the tears that are part of the process, you're not necessarily going to see the best of them. That philosopher is Steve Jones, and the book is Lonely Boy. It's available now. And for the past 40 years, bullocks and all, we've seen this man make history and go through, as Alexander Delarge said, the tortures of the damned. Professor Jones was a self-prescribed habitual criminal, a walking dildo with the attention span of a mosquito. Probably Chrissy Hine put it best, the crack of dawn wasn't safe around him, so we better hurry up and welcome to Murmur and to the modern school of film, Mr. Steve Jones. Steve, how are you? Thanks for being with us, man. That was quite a build-up. <laughs> That's the whole interview, man. It's just hearing us talk about you. <laughs> um, you know, it's quite a book, man. Congratulations. Thank you. Oh, uh, you know, getting good, getting good feedback. Um, I was a bit nervous at first, knowing that I was going to tell all my all my stuff of you know early upbringing with weird pedophilia and that <laughs> kind of stuff. I you know, but then I thought, you know what, it, it is who I am, it's what it made me, and it's because of all that stuff is the way I am today. And, I, and, and uh, it's very easy to, to, uh, to avoid talking about that kind of stuff. But I, I, I'm glad I did, because I think a lot of people, I'm sure like yourself, who, who appreciate the honesty of it, you know what I mean? Well, I didn't mean to sound so glib in the intro. It's just I have so much respect for you. I wanted you to feel at home. But the real lead of this is congratulations You're on being so honest, man. I, I'm sure that there's no other way you could have been. But that's a brave work you put out there. So I hope you're taking that in a little bit. And I hope that's the feedback you're getting. Yeah, no, I've had, I've had really no neg negativity with people who tweet me, say they love the book. I've I've not had one person say this is a load of load of rubbish or or what's wrong with you or you know no literally no negativity one one guy was a bit of a of a knob when he reviewed it but it was it wasn't even a full on horrible review he, he liked a lot of it he, he was just trying to be smart like some some interviewers are you know but yeah. literally out of all the all the interviews that i've read unless someone's keeping some bad ones away from me they've all been good i didn't know clockwork orange was a documentary until i read your book you even said writing the book was kind of like malcolm mcdowell having his eyes propped open was that <laughs> giving birth to this was it i mean did you ever think you wanted to turn away or not go down that road or you know how much of a monologue did you have to continue to actually get the book out it was uh it was um you know it wasn't it wasn't a big deal i just like that image of malcolm mcdowell when he's trying to reform him so they show him all the horrible things he's done yeah yeah um and uh, it, 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 there's a lot listen I'm not too serious. There's a lot of humor in the book. I don't like to be serious about a lot of things. I like to have a laugh. Um, obviously, there's some tragic bits in the book. But, but for me, a lot of it, to me, is humor. And, and, I, and, I, and uh, I've always been that way. And I think that comes across. And that, and that basically is like just being funny with the Malcolm McDowell uh, scenario, you know? There was a lot of... Uh, we're talking to Steve Jones here on Murmur. There I think the tone was perfect. I think it's pitched perfectly because it goes really fast, but it's really detailed. You covered a lot of ground. And, and it's interesting, you know, looking a little bit back in the sort of uh, at the childhood, you know, not to relitigate this because people should read the book. But you said up until six 
things were okay in a way. Um, there, there were some really lovely memories there. Yes, you may have gotten your nicotine addiction during that time, but you know, you talked about going to the cinema, seeing Commander Cody, and you know, really having a kind of family unit there. Is is that is that true, or is that kind of romantic, a romantic view? No, looking back on it, I mean, it was hard to remember from zero to like six or what six. You know, it seemed like uh, a normal loving relationship with my, you know, my, it was a family. It was my granddad. It was my grandmother. It was my mom, my mum's sister, and her two, two uh, brothers mm-hmm. that were all kind of similar age, maybe a, a year here or there. Um, but I don't, I only remember good times. I never remember any darkness mm-hmm. until, until, you know, I guess it was time for my mum to get out of my grand's place to, uh, you know, start our own life and with me in tow. And then, you know, my real dad split. Uh, I don't even remember when, maybe before I was one. And uh, and then my mum had to find someone else, you know, and, and she, she, I guess it's hard when you when you've got a, a, a kid. A lot of dudes are not really interested in some baggage, but she may do with this horrible guy that she was with till the day day he died you know they was together forever yeah but it was just you know subconsciously subconsciously it just it changed for me it was like normal to dark and weird Mm. you know and Mm. i couldn't figure it out when i was six years old what was happening well how did you remember any of it i mean was there a point in your life where you actually took mental notes or did you have to go back literally like start at ground zero when you thought of writing the book are you a diary keeper did you ever keep a journal of your life not in a million years i I hate writing and i hate reading it was just (laughs) no it was just memory little bits little bits that came to mind i couldn't tell you what happened in a whole day but like little bits of it came out you know and um there was big big patches uh, of course when you're six i mean i don't think you remember a lot yeah yeah, yeah. And, uh, and years of drugs i don't think helps but it's funny i can detail <laughs> some specific little things uh, when i was that young well what's cool in the book is everything is a mirror to something else you know again not to be glib and use a movie reference but you talked about where your mom worked was like you know David Lynchian, Eraserheadian, you know, and and even Battersea is a kind of Brazil, you know. What I love about the book, it's never in one place at once. You're always in two tenses, and I think that's part of, as you said, to keep the tone a, a really fresh tone. It's a it's a really amazing book in that way. Um, you write it like it's nothing, man. But when I read it, I was like talking about not properly reading and writing until later in your life, much later in your life. Uh, I believe you said you, you had an, an Asian woman help you later in your life and you know certain things like having a checkbook and all these things came to you later in life. That's a pretty ballsy thing to put in a book. Did you debate some of the heavier topics in the book before you put them in? No, no. To me, that's not a big deal. The, the, like, the only thing that seemed like a bit weird was was uh you know um the the sexual stuff when i was young with 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 other uh, with other men yeah that was the only thing that made me uncomfortable you know uh what i well not uncomfortable uh, knowing that other people were gonna 
know that stuff when I was a juvenile, you know. What I found really fascinating and, and intelligent and insightful about the book is you mentioned the event, but I was more fixated on the result of the event. Not that the events weren't horrendous and, and really profound, but, you know, a line like, I definitely didn't feel wanted as a child. It, it's kind of, yeah. that's, and even, look, I don't get fixated on titles, but you were a lonely kid. Loneliness to me is the hardest burden anyone would have to bear. You know, invisibility, loneliness. I'm not saying the details are unimportant, but the result of the details. Is that kind of how you look at it now? Like, shit, that happened, but now I've got to sort through the realities of what happened. Um, and you're still dealing a little with that fallout. Yeah, I mean, as far as me wanting to have a relationship with someone, yeah. it just doesn't look like it's on the cards because I'm my makeup ain't designed to be in a relationship. My head can't deal with it. I've, I've tried having various girlfriends, but it just doesn't, it just doesn't work. I'm, I'm better off alone. You know, I just, it just, it's one of them things that ain't going to happen. I sound like we're on a date here, but what's the longest relationship you had? I've had, I've well, had. The, the longest one I had was with the girl in it, Nina, who I met in New York. Right. But that was, that was kind of a, I love her, and we had a good time, but it really was a bullshit relationship because I was fucking high on heroin, and that that really doesn't count, you know? Yeah, yeah. You're not present, you know, um, and it's no disrespect to her. It, it, that's the problem. When I ever, and whenever I used to go on any other dates and I get to like a chick, all of a sudden, man, that, that, that switch would just switch off. And then they take it personally. They think it's them. They think it's them, but it's not. It's just me at this uh, this crossroad where I can't get through it. Mm. I can't get through it. Mm. I lose. There's no sexual attraction anymore. It, 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 it's 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 so obvious that it was me as a kid longing for my mum's attention. Mm. And as soon as I get that attention, I'm done with you. So it's that constant longing, you know what I mean? And it's it, it, every chick I go out with is my mother. I'm drawn to a certain type. You know, if chicks are nice to me I, and would eat out my hand, I couldn't care less. I like the ones that ain't available and kind of fuck me over. Yeah. It's the, and, and it's purely, it's straight from my upbringing with my mum. It's not even about the stepdad stuff. Right. I mean, obviously that that threw some a weird one in 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 the system, but the what the main one I think for me not having a relationship is my relationship with my mother. Well, it's interesting speaking with uh, Steve Jones. Uh, it's interesting you mentioned Ron in the book, your stepdad, and there was an incident of sexual abuse. Um, what is when is that point in a relationship for you? Is it after you have sex with a girl? It's intimacy, right? Is that the firewall, like the feeling of intimacy? Or is this too psychobabbly? No, no. I think intimacy's got a play in it for sure. Yeah. Um, it's. I'm just used to strangers. You know, I yeah. I only get hard for strangers. Yeah. Yeah. You know, which uh, you can look at it as intimacy. Or using people as objects, or you know, don't want any feelings involved in any relationship. Yeah. It, it, whatever it is, it's a mishmash of shit that just won't let me move forward, and it's so ingrained inside of me 
that I could never see me. And I've had I've had years of therapy, you know, yeah. and I just can't see me getting round that round that obstacle. It's funny. I'm reading your book and I'm thinking like about abandonment because that's a word that people think. Oh, so you were an orphan as a child? No. When you're abandoned, it simply means someone's not present. L- literally, you know, they could be in the room with you and not present. But I think that idea, that feeling abandoned, you know, again, not to go back to that word lonely. I just think this word, if if I could eviscerate any condition in the human in the human landscape, it would be loneliness because it is terrifying. It's endless. Yeah. But you didn't stop, man. You said you'd never really thought on a rational level of suicide. What kept you going? Did you? care if you lived or died did you have goals my goal was to get out of the shit that i was in yeah that that was my main goal there's got to be something better than where i just came from you know there's got to be something better there's got to be more stuff in the world than what i've been exposed to you know and it was that drive music was a big part of that um i'm a complete music nut Uh, i i can pick up and stuff before a lot of people do i have very good ears but i do and 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 it's just it, it you know i don't have that drive as much as i used to because i'm a bit more comfortable with myself yeah. but at that time when i was a teenager or whatever it was just um i couldn't sit still i had yeah. to keep moving even yeah. if i weren't going anywhere i had to keep moving in my head that was how i dealt with my my upbringing and i'm, I'm sure that's that's why i, I kept pushing and driving and pushing. One of the amazing things about the book, amongst all the amazing things, and a, re- and a really cool appendix about what, what's rock and roll and what's not, and I'll leave that for the readers, but you know, I, I kept making lists of the music you reference, you know, different parts of your life, Motown, Otis Redding, Ska, Blue Beat, Prince Buster, you know, and then into Roxy Music, having Beauty Queen as your ringtone. Is that really your ringtone still? Yeah. Can you call it right now? You also hit on bands that I think are are really underestimated in terms of their place, let alone how they provided the, 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 the bedrock for you guys. You really loved music, man. That's a common theme in the book, how much you've always loved music. Yeah. And that kind of saves you a little bit, no? I mean, that kind of gets you through. We all need those things, right? Yeah. Did you also bleach your hair like Andy McKay of Roxy Music? Yeah. I, I, on the second album, he had like this blonde bit at the front <laughs> with some blue in it. But I did I did the blonde thing. Just like I was obsessed with that look, with that white boiler suit with silver stripes in it and the, and, and the glitter pop brothel creepers. I thought that was the best look ever. I also made lists of all the damn bands you were in, man. And the fir- was the first one was The Strand. Was that the name of the band, which was in the spirit of Roxy Music, Do The Strand? Was that the first group you all ever, like you and Cookie, it, was The Strand the first band you, you all put together? Um, It was either that first or The Swankers came first. <laughs> I'm not sure what one came first. None of them did anything yeah. other than change names. It was basically, I th- you know what, I think it was uh, when Stephen Hayes and Jimmy Mackin went to the wayside and it was me, Cookie, Glenn Matlock, 
and Wally Nightingale. I think it was the Swankers for a little bit, then it was the Strand, right. and then it became Cutie Jones and the Sex Pistols, right. and then it was the Sex Pistols. Right. I think that's how it went down. Before Lydon came in and, and that whole revolution, you were you took a turn at, at the lead singer, right? I mean, it didn't la- didn't seem to last long, but Malcolm wanted you to be the front man, put you in front of the band? Well, that was what it was, and this was before he came down watching us rehearse, and right. I, got, I managed to get him to came, come down eventually, to watch us rehearse, and, and he came down, and he'd hang out, um, and I was singing, you know. Yeah. But I think he knew that I weren't the right guy to be the front guy. And we did one show down Kings Road in some calf at night, and it was just a disaster. And I knew right there and then I didn't want to be the front guy because everyone stares at you, and I just it just wasn't for me. I think I think you have to be a certain personality to be a front man, not a singer, but right. a front guy, you know? Right, right, right. And uh, it just weren't me. So it, it was exactly the correct thing to do was get me not singing, get rid of Wally Nightingale, get yeah. me on guitar and audition for a singer. Yeah, I think you all made the right decisions. I think it worked out okay 40 years later. Uh, I, I want to touch a little bit on the Sex Pistols, but you know, honestly, man, the first question is, are you sick of talking about the Sex Pistols? No, I hate talking about it. And for the last two weeks, that's all I've been doing because I've been doing a lot of press for the book, you know. Yeah. And but it is, it, you know, it is part of my life, and and it's and it's fine. So fire away. Because I want to look at a specific point at it that of it that I thought was really interesting, and that's 1976, December 1st, Bill Grundy. Because you make a really specific point in the book that that was the dividing line in the pistol story. Like I, I don't want to get into all the other stuff that's been litigated, but I do want to look at that point, the Bill Grundy program, because I find it fascinating how powerful TV was at that time. You know, early 70s, top of the into top of the pops. It was a big deal. That was a big interview for you guys. It watch- was massive. Yeah. And, you know, back then, uh, unlike America, there was literally two channels. There was Thames <laughs> Television and there was BBC One, maybe BBC Two. Yeah. And this show, the Bill Grundy show, the Today Show, it was, it was, it was, you know, it was, it was, everyone watched it. They're sitting at home having their dinner. Um, and uh, it's one of them things that everyone watched. And it was, um, it was, it was, it was bizarre. I still question whether there was some goings on behind the scenes. The, the fact that it all that went out live without any um, set, set seven seconds delay. With no delay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that I mean, they had delays back then. It wasn't like. They didn't have it. I believe they had it anyway. They did. They certainly did. They had delays as far as back as Ed Sullivan. It's funny you make that the dividing line, but is that a, a regretful dividing line? You know that interview. Uh, the it next was, day, the next day, the the headlines read "The Filth and the Fury." You know, it was literally the next day. It was the most amazing thing. You know. Yeah. It was most amazing thing in rock and roll to me, but then. You know, then it became about just headlines. The next day, it was great. I mean, it was it was great, and it was good for a few weeks. I was getting laid every fucking day. <laughs> you know, yeah, and um, yeah. but in hindsight, looking back, I think that was actually the beginning of the end. That was the beginning of the end because it 
had nothing to do. We, we all of a sudden had nothing to do with music. Yeah. You know, thank God, you know, we had the songs to do Never Mind the Bollocks because I couldn't see us really writing any more songs after that because it went somewhere else. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know that for a fact, especially when Sid joined, it, the chemistry changed. You know, Matlock was important to, you know, some of the songs that we did. And we, we, we wasn't famous, so that was a, another plus. But as soon as the Grundy thing and everyone's ego started going berserk and, you know, this is, look, this is the way I'm looking at it. And it, and it was just like, it was, we were every, we, we were, everyone was wanting a piece, piece of it all of a sudden. Yeah. And I think we were just too young and just, it was too much for us. It was like shooting us into at warp speed into another galaxy, and, and I don't think we, you know where, where we shouldn't have been going that fast. But nevertheless, that's the way it ended up. <laughs> yes. Ended up the way they end up, and it was one of them great moments. And I'm glad it was documented of being on TV. And it's even though it looks lame now, it, it's still a great moment. I, I beg to differ. I don't think it looks lame at all. I think you were kids, and I don't mean that as an insult. I, I think that's what's really amazing about it. And what's cool in the book is. You, you take every opportunity to say in, in different words, I wish we could go back in a time machine to when we were writing songs, you know, that time. There, there's always been a purity about you around everything. You, you really get, gave a shit, you know, and I think that's immense. Yeah. That, that's the consistent piece, you know, never mind the bullocks. The first thing you hear is the clapping. The second thing you hear is you. You know, those those notes, man, that's you. You were steady. There was some piece of you that was always steady. You may not see it that way because you're in the thing. But I don't look yeah. at your history as as a, as ice alternating its thickness. I think you were always consistent about, you know, you even said we, we didn't want to be sloppy musicians. You talked a lot about, you know, Leiden's drinking and that's on stage and that's when it went off the rails and when he didn't it didn't you know there's there's a purity to what you would were, were doing i'm 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 a virgo and i don't <laughs> like sloppy i don't like living in shit i like all my shit in place and, <laughs> and it reflects on my personality if i'm recording something i like to do it right i don't want to just go in there and make a racket right. i'm not happy with that it has to be right and and considering i only you know, I've been playing around a year. I had to get it right. Whether it and, and and the the good the good thing is is that I really gelled with Chris Thomas. He was a great producer, and yeah. he saw me for what I was, and we experimented. And that was the, that was the favorite time of the Pistols uh, for me doing that album and some of the early shows. Other than that, I really you know they were great moments, but it all all went cockeyed, you know, well, pretty quick. This is a weird way to describe you. You were almost a designated driver of the Pistols. During the Pistols, you know, you, there's a really interesting anecdote about you helping Sid lay down my way in Paris and what a nightmare what that was and, and te yeah. teaching Sid. And, you know, I, I got to say, you know, I, I wasn't there, obviously, but after the Pistols, the earth moved. That, that, seemed, that to me was the news of the book, how the post-Pistols, the whole didn't change man and that you had to put all this sh stuff in it whether it's substance or sex or what have you um yeah what was the saving grace after the pistols i know you know you ultimately went through tw 12 steps but what do you if you think music was the saving grace 
into the pistols? What saved your life out of the pistols, in a sense? Um, well, I mean, I don't know after the pistols, because I just literally wanted to uh, um, just just get under a, you know, live in a cave and not be seen and just disappear. Yeah. But it was it, the real the real shift was when I got sober. Eventually, after f***ing around for uh, um, you know uh, six years, just you know, losing everything, bottoming it out, humiliation, doing degrading things, and then finally turning it around. Um, that was when I really. That was the first time when when, when I really got sober in in October. Uh, 1990. Now I'm being good to Steve. This this is this is this is the beginning of me being good. I'd never been good to myself before that. You know, I never had a clue on how to live or anything. You know, and I've been sober 26 years, and it's and congratulations, it's a, man. Thank you. It's been a good road. You know, ups and downs, but it you know, it it, it was it it took a lot to get to that place and. I don't say I walk around on a magic carpet, flying around on a magic carpet. You know, shit's still difficult, and being 61 is difficult. I've never been old before. This is It's all new, you know? Yeah. I don't, like, have a head full of fucking snakes anymore where I'm just, like, want to climb out my body. It, it, it's, it, I'm, I'm grateful that I've got a bit of serenity in, in my life now, you know? Tell, tell the folks listening uh, why October 28th, 1990, was a kind of ironic day to pledge sobriety. You say it in the book, but why was that date important for you? I mean, it, it seemed more coincidence than anything else, but what else happened October 28th? I don't know. I forgot. What did it, what did it say? <laughs> I'm glad you said that. That was the same day uh, Nevermind the Bullocks came out in um, 1977, actually. It was the same date, October 28th, 1977. That is bizarre. Yeah. You, you've read, have you read the book? Oh, I have. I, I I I had to read it. I, I didn't want to. I had to. Yeah, it's the same date, man. You you say in the book that you didn't do it that way. That's the way it worked itself out. That, that I had, well, listen. When I got sober, I, I wasn't waiting for October. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Hey, can I get sober? I gotta wait one more week. It's it's only October twenty first. <laughs> <laughs> um, just a couple more thoughts. You know, I just love some of the stuff in the latter chapters, like letting situations unfold. You know, it's it's philosophy without the 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 crap around it. Like you you seem to find your own guidance. You know, and as you even talk about religion and the twelve steps, it's your own version of it. You know, it's that's kind of what we do, right? We we write our own. You got to get rid of those tapes in your mind. We all do, and you break. You got to break the rules as an adult, and you've done that. But as you say in the book, it's never over. And no, it's never over till it's till, it, till it's lights out. You know, it's, I'm always gonna have that genetic makeup where I'm obsessive personality that never goes. You, you never just cruise off into the sunset. From from my experience, from what I've seen, you know. You never know, man. You never know what's around the corner. Well, you're also only 61, and the other thing I encourage people to do is check out Steve's Instagrams. I mean, talk about short films by David Lynch. They're really amazing. Uh, one of the things you ever see, yeah. did you ever, you know, what's great, uh, um, but it's hard to get is a Phoenix Rising. Yeah, it's kind of Kenneth Anger. It's it's fascinating. Yeah, I haven't seen. it. I think I saw it in a museum once. I've never seen it. 
uh, yeah, it's funny because I was going to ask you. I mean, would you ever thought of doing the film? You you've had all these film uh, experiences. What about doing your own film and getting your own film legacy on the books? Uh, you never know, man. I don't want to say, but you never know. Another bit of irony, just to close with, Pete Watts of Mott the Hoople died. I know. I know. That bummed me out. That bummed me out because he was a true classic rock and roll star. You know, with yeah. the, I mentioned it on the radio the other day and I played I played uh, Saturday gigs or I played something in his honor. I used to love that band, man. And, and he stuck out for me with the big silver boots past his knee. He used to, like... Painted hair silver, he had this big hairy chest and he used to stand there with his legs open. He was like a classic rock and roll star, that guy. I, had a, it, it, I didn't like it when I heard he died. You know, know. he died of, uh, I think, cancer. Yeah. It's just a shame. He, he, was, he was a good one, that guy. In the book you mentioned you saw them with Queen, uh, that Queen opened for them. Yeah. I, I, incredible. It's funny. You said something in the book that made me literally throw the book against the wall and scream out of joy. I hate when people eulogize people they don't know. I hate it. I hate yeah. the social phenomena. It is another form of narcissism. I know this isn't a question. I just wanted to tell you this when I read it. I was like, God damn it. At least someone says this finally. I am so sick of eulogizing. Yes, it's it's these people who have been passing recently. It's incredible and tragic and important, but I don't care that it bothers you. Do you know? I I mean, I we you know, we've done this we've done these interviews a lot and if someone passes that I know, we always pay respects. But if I don't know them i just feel it's narcissism do you feel that way and and why what is it about this public eulogizing that you don't particularly like well it's ridiculous they're just looking for likes on their instagram yeah you know yeah that's all it is that they they wouldn't know the guy they're talking about whoever (laughs) yeah i can't stand that i can't stand that and uh you know, the next day they run to something else. <laughs> it, it gets to a point where when Prince died, I thought, oh, no, tomorrow it's going to be all about Prince. CNN. Oh. What do I care what CNN thinks about Prince? Yeah. A- anyway, I, I want to leave with one thought, man. I want to thank you for being with us. It's funny. I always think about this expression. I dated this girl once, and I was after we broke up, somebody told me something that I was thinking about when I was reading your book. He said to me, uh, there's a difference between an angel and a devil. He said, when a devil leaves you, you feel like they've taken something. When an angel leaves you, you feel like they've left you something. Yeah. How, have you met more angels or devils in your life? I'm, I'm pretty blessed. I, I think there's someone looking out for me. You know, I definitely think, I don't think there's a, a devil or a darkness to me at all. It's always, I always land on my feet, you know. I definitely think someone's looking out for me. I really believe that. Um, also, before I, before I forget, I did the audio for my book too. If you, if you don't read, which I, I would probably get the audio because I don't like reading, uh, I think you can get it on Amazon. I, I actually do the voice for it, you know. Oh, cheers! Oh, that's a way. To, I'd lo- I think people should do that. This is a perfect car ride book. I mean, it's yeah. it's a great book. It's funny. Just in closing, before I let you go, uh, I, we had Larry Clark on a couple weeks ago, and and we were. Uh, talking and he said oh my god I just did the best thing ever I said what he said I went on Jonesy's jukebox it was like the highlight of my my last 10 years he went on and on and you know I know we didn't get to talk about that maybe we'll do this again and talk about your rebirth man um, w- let me just ask you because we're kind of do what is it about putting on headphones getting in front of a microphone that you get off on 
is because I find it intimate. Yeah. What do you get off on when you do the Jonesy's jukebox? What is it about that experience that really drives you? I love being in in the city you're in. You're playing music live, and you, and you're turning people onto stuff, and you're goofing around. I, I've got no interest in doing like serious where you're just talking and you're not playing any music, and they put in songs halfway through, and you're done in ten minutes. To me, that is like that's like some weird job. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, it's so a, I'm actually yeah. in the town you're in, and people are driving around listening to you. I don't know. I just love doing it. It, 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 it. It's so good. It's so good that you're doing it live, you know? Well, you know, you, um, there's a difference between being strong and tough and maybe you're not a tough guy, but I'm telling you, man, you're, you're stronger than you know. And I just want to thank you because, you know, this is, this is going to be the fallout. You're going to have a lot of people say that you've inspired them even more. And I want to thank you, man. I wish you all the health, mental, physical, otherwise and if we could ever be of service on this end of the country let us know man so i appreciate it buddy thanks for reading the book i can obviously obviously i know you've read it and and you you sound sincere i appreciate it thank you for being with us steve we'll catch up with you again all right buddy thanks a lot see you later cheers steve Billy rapped all night about his suicide how he kicking in the head when he reached 25 that speed jive don't want to stay alive when you're 25 Wendy's stealing clothes from marks and sparks And Freddy's got spots from ripping off stars from his face The funky little boat race The television man is crazy Saying we're juvenile delinquent wrecks Like man, I need a TV when I've got T-Rex Hey, mister, you guessed I'm a dad. Like a mule, it's a real mean team, but we can love. Oh, we got love. Brother's back at home with his Beatles and his stones. We never got it off, and his revolution stopped. What a drag! Too many snacks. Drunk a lot of wine, and I'm feeling fine. Gotta race some cats a bed. There's a concrete all around us. In my head, just in my head.
Galadoots carry the news. I love that song. I've always loved that song. I think it's a, it's such a great song. And that's Bowie, of course. You know, it's really cool. It's giving me goosebumps. All the young dudes. I love that. Uh, Steve's great. Jonesy's is awesome. Uh, I was thinking, uh, you know, <laughs> this idea of pain and art and muting pain and allowing pain to move us forward. And there's really uh, George Orwell <laughs> is back in the news now. I wonder why. 1984. Uh, he, he wrote a great essay in 1946. 1946, 1946. Um, it's called Why I Write. And he gives a really interesting, detailed, almost analytical uh, motivational scheme for why he writes. One of, one of his data points is sheer egoism, the desire to seem clever. Uh, and he goes on about egoism. The second point is aesthetic and enthusiasm. His third bullet point is historical impulse, and he illuminates and he uh, he stretches all these bullet points out. The fourth one is political purpose. I wonder if that would come in handy now. But anyway, uh, later and deeper, if you read Why I Write by Orwell, uh, he talks about uh, a childhood of being insecure and a father that he hadn't seen until he was eight years old. Uh, so I guess, you know, pain is, is ultimately left brain, right brain, uh, reality. You know, we deal with it in our own ways. I don't advocate pain or I don't suggest pain is part and parcel to art. We've, we've cherry picked some amazing examples of amazing artists who have documented their pain and led to great art, but what that means is there there are hundreds and thousands of millions of others who would maybe say the opposite. And maybe this idea doesn't even matter. Maybe what matters is movement, however brief. Artists who have experienced pain and created have also suffered and and would they trade that longevity happiness for their art i don't know many of them are not with us but jonesy is and jonesy says really well that it's what made him who he is and i don't think he has any regrets and wouldn't trade it but the demons don't go away that easily and and uh he's still living with them uh he's creating art in a different way he does jonesy's jukebox so does the end justify the means it's i guess it's the point is it's not a two-act play. Life is a multiple-act play. I want to thank Steve Jones for being with us today. Uh, check out his book, Lonely Boy, available on audiobook. I'd love to hear him read it, so I would say audiobook is a cool experience. Thank you, Jonesy. Thank you all for listening, and uh, we're here every week, live, WHUPLP. We're also on iTunes. We're on Google Play. We're on Stitcher. You can hear us anytime. Download us. Murmurradio at gmail.com. Let us know you're out there. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at MSF Murmur. Thanks again. See you soon.